I'm reading from the fifth chapter of the first epistle of St. Peter, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Last week I gave you a little history of what I'm calling the plague prayer, which showed how Anglicans over the centuries have prayed during the time of pandemics. Continuing with that study, I want us to look at these prayers in some detail and compare them with the teaching of Scripture, because I think if we study these prayers and the Scriptures related to them, we can discover what our response should be to a pandemic such as the one we are enduring now. And perhaps we might be better equipped to pray, as we should, if future pandemics should come our way, which may be far more severe than this one. As we looked at the history of plagues last week, we should be asking ourselves, what if we are entering one of those phases in human history when plagues just keep popping up every 20 years, every five years? Or what if we are entering a period when it's never going to go completely away? What if the people of God are going to be asked to live in the presence of plagues for many years to come? What shall we do? Well, the scriptures and our prayer book teach us how to respond. One of the questions that is asked most frequently during a time such as this is, why would God allow such a thing to happen? Now, as I said last week, the scriptures, and historically, the Book of Common Prayer, held the view that God was sovereign even over plagues and pestilence. God sent them, and God removed them. That the scriptures teach that God is sovereign over all events is plain. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. God's hands are not tied. God does not have to ask the permission of any human being to do what he wants. He does what he wants to do in heaven and earth. Psalm 135 verses 6 through 10 says, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth in the seas, and all deep places. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries, who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, who sent tokens and wonders into the midst of thee, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and upon all his servants, who smote great nations and slew mighty kings. God does whatever he pleases, in heaven, earth, the seas, in the deepest depths. God does whatever he pleases, including killing all the firstborn of Egypt. There is nothing going on in any part of this universe that is not under God's sovereign control. Jesus said in Matthew 10:29, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. How sovereign is God? How much is he in control of whatever happens in this world? God is so much in control of everything that he determines when each tiny sparrow will die. He is also in control of each tiny virus. Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, Look up into the heavens who created all the stars. He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. How many stars are in the universe? 
Well, scientists estimate that there may be between 100 billion and 200 billion stars just in our galaxy, the Milky Way. But scientists tell us that there may be 10 trillion galaxies, which would mean there are one septillion stars. That's one with 24 zeros after it. And yet God knows each one intimately, calls it by name. A National Geographic article says that more than a quadrillion quadrillion individual viruses exist on Earth. An estimated 10 nanillion. I didn't even know that word until I read this article. Nanillion. That's 10 to the 31st power. 10 nonillion individual viruses exist on our planet, enough to assign one to every star in the universe. We can be thankful that most of those viruses are not interested in human beings. But if God keeps track of numberless stars, he also keeps track of every virus, even 10 nonillion of them. We wonder how God could be in control of everything from giant stars and galaxies to tiny viruses. Remember that God is not only all-powerful, He is also omnipresent, present everywhere at once. Because the scripture uses the language that God is seated on His throne ruling from heaven, we get the idea that He may be far away on some distant galaxy conducting things from a distance. No, He is present with you right now, and He is present with every single person on this planet. He is not only present with you, he is also present inside you, present with every cell, every molecule, every atom, and every bacteria and virus. There is no place where God is not. He is omnipresent. We maintain both the eminence and the transcendence of God. God is imminent, near to his creation, but he is also transcendent. He is with everything in nature, but he is not nature itself. He is separate from his creation, but he is present with every part of his creation. This is the God we worship, a God who is sovereign over everything. This is not the God that is preached in most churches today. As A.W. Pink wrote in his book, The Attributes of God, the God of this 20th century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle the glory of the midday sun. The God who is talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school, mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day, and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences, is the figment of human imagination, an invention of maudlin sentimentality. A God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity, and so far from being a fit object of worship, merits naught but contempt. Maudlin. One of my favorite words, and it describes the typical Christian of our time, maudlin, extremely sentimental. The God of most Christians is the invention of the emotionally weak. The Jesus of most Christians is an effeminate flower child who tiptoes through the tulips, flashing the peace sign to everyone. But that's not Jesus. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, 
sovereign ruler of the universe, sovereign Lord over life and death, sickness and health. So when we think of how we should respond to a pandemic, we need to put away our sentimental ideas about God, look at the scriptures and find biblical answers to that question. God is sovereign over everything, including viruses. Now, some people might think that we are rather primitive in our thinking. People sometimes say that in the ancient times, since people didn't know what caused plagues, they naturally attributed it to an angry God. And when we read our prayer book, the language of God sending a plague, it was just because in those pre-scientific days, people didn't know that diseases were caused by germs, by bacteria, viruses. In other words, before the days of modern science, they didn't know that there were natural causes of these diseases. But that is not true. Last week I mentioned a plague that swept through London in 1603 that killed 35,000 people. While that plague was spreading, Lancelot Andrews preached a sermon during that crisis. Now Lancelot Andrews was probably the most learned man of his day. Some have described him as a walking library. He was the editor-in-chief of the King James translation of the Bible. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, we could call the King James Version the Lancelot Andrews Version because he translated a great deal of the text and looked over all the committees that were translating the King James Version. He was the most eloquent preacher in the history of Anglicanism. But in the sermon that he preached in 1603 during the spread of the disease, he did not deny that the disease had natural causes. He said that if you ask the physician, he will say the cause is the air. The air is infected. The humors corrupted the contagion of the sick. And he said, they be all true causes. Now, back in those days, before the advent of modern science, Andrews didn't have an accurate understanding of what those natural causes were. But he knew that there were natural causes and that diseases were contagious. No one is denying that diseases have natural causes. But Andrews goes on to say, but as we acknowledge these to be true, that in all diseases there is a natural cause, so we may say there is somewhat more, something divine and above nature. Andrews was saying what I've been saying. Yes, disease have natural causes, but God is also in control of the natural causes. In other words, God is the first cause of everything that happens. But God works through second causes. A second cause is just a cause caused by something else. So when we look at a pandemic, the second cause is the virus. But the one in control of the virus is God himself. So when we say that God is sovereign over all disease, we're not denying that diseases have a natural cause. We're simply saying that God is in control of the natural causes. In 1866, in the East End of London, there was an outbreak of cholera that killed around 4,000 people between July and November. Now, we know that cholera is caused by bacteria that comes to people by drinking infected water or eating contaminated food. People have long known that sanitation helps prevent the spread of cholera. I remember my grandmother criticizing some people who lived close to her who were very unclean in their habits. And she would say, they're going to create cholera over there. Well, 
people knew that there was a connection between filth and the spread of cholera, even back in 1866. During that plague, the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, preached a sermon called The Voice of the Cholera. And I will quote extensively from that sermon today. Spurgeon says what Lancelot Andrews said, there is a natural cause for this disease and there are natural means to stop its spread. Spurgeon said, it seems to me that this disease is to a great extent in our own hands and that if all men would take scrupulous care as to cleanliness and if better dwellings were provided for the poor and if overcrowding were effectually prevented and if the water supply could be larger and other sanitary improvements could be carried out, the disease most probably would not occur. Or if it did visit us occasionally as the result of filth in other countries, it would be in a very mitigated form. Can't believe Spurgeon used that word mitigate in 1866. Anyway, Spurgeon goes on. I am thankful that there are many men of intelligence and scientific information who can speak well upon this point and I hope they will never cease to speak until all men learn that the laws of cleanliness and health are as binding upon us as those of morality. So far from a Christian being angry with those who instruct the people in useful secular knowledge, he ought rather to be thankful for them and hope that their teaching may be powerful with the masses. The same is true today. As Christians, we know that this pandemic has a natural cause and it can be treated by natural means, all the modern means of medicine. And we do everything we can to help them in their pursuit of this knowledge. As a matter of fact, a person with my view of the Christian's mission to the world is that part of our creation mandate is to eliminate all diseases from the world. It's part of taking dominion, of bringing creation into subjection as God commanded Adam. But Spurgeon goes on to say, on the other hand, it is even more common for those who look to natural causes alone to sneer at believers who view the disease as a mysterious scourge from the hand of God. It is admitted that it would be most foolish to neglect the appointed means of averting sickness. But sneer who may, we believe it to be equally an act of folly to forget that the hand of the Lord is in all this. We believe that God sends all pestilences let them come how they may, and that he sends them with a purpose, let them be removed in whatever way they may. And we conceive that it is our business as ministers of God to call the people's attention to God in the disease and teach them the lesson which God would have them learn. So we see the hand of God in every pandemic and we look for the lessons that God is teaching us in the pandemic. No doubt this is what the writers of the prayer book believed as well. In the 1789 version, we pray, May this, thy fatherly correction, have its due influence upon us by leading us to consider how frail and uncertain our life is, that we may apply our hearts unto that heavenly wisdom, which in the end will bring us to everlasting life. Among many other lessons we might learn during a pandemic, surely this is one to learn how frail and uncertain our life is and to apply our hearts to that wisdom that leads to eternal life. No matter how diseases may come, God sends them with a purpose.
Now the question arises, why would God send or permit plague and pestilence? You may be wondering if I'm going to say why God sent the coronavirus. Well, let me set your mind at ease. No, I don't claim to know the specific reason God has permitted the coronavirus to spread around the world. No one else does either. But with that said, we do know that God has a purpose in allowing these things to happen. We no longer have prophets or apostles to whom God speaks directly so that we might know the specific reason for the spread of this disease. But what we can do is study those places in Scripture to see why God sent plagues and pestilences at that time and see if God might be sending plagues and pestilences for the same reason now. It's funny when people ask the question, why would God do something like this? Or why would God allow something like this? Well, there are billions of reasons God would do something like this. There are billions of people on this planet and pandemics like this have an effect on everyone. And God has a purpose for each different person. To quote Spurgeon's cholera sermon again, my brethren, our God is too gracious to send us this cholera without a motive. And he is moreover too wise, for we all know that judgments frequently repeated lose their force. Besides, he is withal too great to trifle with men's lives. We heard of some 1,200 or more who died in a week in London. But did we estimate the aggregate of personal pain couched in that number, the aggregate of sorrow brought to so many hundred families, the aggregate, too, of eternal interests which were involved in those sudden deaths? Time and eternity, both of them big with tremendous importance, were wrapped up just so many times in those hundreds who fell beneath the mower's scythe. Think you the Lord does this for nothing? Spurgeon is right. As we think on this pandemic that has swept through the world with so much devastation, do you honestly think that the Lord has no purpose in allowing this to happen? This pandemic has eternal consequences for millions of people. Our God would never have permitted this to happen with no reason. Spurgeon goes on to say, forever banished from the Christian's conversation be the word chance. It repents me greatly, says Augustine, that I ever used that heathenish word fortuna. For fortune or chance is a base heathenish invention. God rules and overrules all things, and he does nothing without a motive. Brethren, the falling of a sparrow to the earth is in the divine purpose and answers an end. Every grain of dust that is whirled from the threshing floor is steered with as unerring a wisdom as the stars in their courses, and there is not a leaf that trembles in the autumn from the tree, but is piloted by the plan and purpose of the Lord as much as Arcturus, the giant red star, and his sons. Surely then, in so great an event as death, involving, as we have already said, so much of pain to the person falling, so much of bereavement and sorrow to the families of those who are smitten. We cannot believe but what God has a purpose. 
The insatiable archer is not permitted to shoot his bolts at random. Every arrow that flies bears this inscription, I have a message from God for you. When God permits disease to walk through the streets at night to stretch out his mighty but invisible hand and take away here a child and there a full-grown man and consign to the grave those who might have otherwise long survived, you will not believe that the Lord commissioned so dread a messenger without intending to answer some end by his errand. Let us conclude most surely that a purpose consistent with the love and justice of God lies hidden in the present harvest of death. Now, I know it takes great faith to believe what Spurgeon said, but I would rather believe what he said than believe that we live in a world that is ruled by chance and accident. Though we shake our heads in great sadness and horror at what is happening, I hold on to what Spurgeon says here. God has a purpose in this that is consistent with his love and justice, and I leave it at that. This pandemic is part of God's plan and purpose for everyone who is affected by it. We can say that God sends plague and pestilence for an infinite number of reasons. God is infinite, and his reasons for sending a plague and pestilence are as infinite as he is. The reasons he sends these things have eternal consequences, consequences that will last throughout eternal ages, so we will never be able to explain all the reasons why God has allowed this pandemic to spread. Let us say that the outbreak of a disease caused a person to think seriously about life, death, and eternity for the first time, and that person turned to Christ in repentance and faith. That person will be praising God for eternal ages that God used the outbreak of a disease to work in him repentance and faith. So though there may be an infinite number of reasons why God might send plagues and pestilences, we can search scripture and put those reasons into some broad groups. I'll mention those reasons that appear most obvious. First, God sends plague and pestilence as judgment. Second, God sends plague and pestilence to save his people. Third, God sends plague and pestilence to protect his people. Fourth, God sends plague and pestilence to discipline his people. And fifth, God sends plague and pestilence to make his glory known. So let us look at the first reason. God sends plague and pestilence as judgment. This is by far the usual reason God sends plagues and pestilence in Scripture. In Leviticus 26, the Lord tells his people to keep his commandments and he will bless them. But he warns them in verses 14 and 16, But if you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and if you shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. And then the Lord begins to list all the various judgments he will bring upon them. Finally, in verse 25, he says, And I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant, 
And when ye are gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence among you, and ye shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. So in that passage, God says that if his people broke his covenant, he would send a pestilence among them. Could that be the reason God has allowed this plague to spread in this country of ours at the present time? Now let me pause and say that I don't like to draw too many parallels between Israel in the Old Testament and the United States. Israel was in covenant with God as a nation. Our nation is not. The church is in covenant with God, and St. Peter calls the church a holy nation. So the church is a nation within the nation that we call the United States. But the United States is a pagan nation. There are still some remnants of Christian influence in our laws and institutions, but we are rapidly discarding those so that we might become a totally secular state with no regard for God's commandments. Ours is a nation that has a large group of Christians within it, but morally and spiritually, this is a pagan nation. We live in a post-Christian culture. And so many of the laws in this country support the most outlandish forms of paganism. So I don't equate the United States with Israel of the Old Testament. Our nation is more like Assyria, Babylon, or Egypt in the Old Testament. But with that said, we shouldn't think that God didn't bring judgment upon nations that were not in covenant with him. As we have studied in our Sunday school class on Ezekiel, a large part of that book is taken up with foreign nations that God judged, like Egypt, Babylon, Tyre, and Sidon. And we're told that God specifically sent a pestilence to Sidon, though they were not his covenant people. Though those nations weren't God's covenant people, God judged them for their idolatry and especially for their pride. And in 1 Samuel 5, we see that the Lord sent a plague of tumors upon the Philistines when they took the Ark of the Covenant. So even though a nation may not be in covenant with God, idolatry is still idolatry, blasphemy is still blasphemy, murder is still murder, adultery is still adultery, theft is still theft, lying is still lying, and covetousness is still covetousness. And for all these sins, God is more than justified in bringing a plague upon a nation like that, even upon a totally secular nation as the one in which we live. In the sermon by Spurgeon that I was quoting earlier, he writes of judgments that come upon nations in the form of disease. And he writes, I'm not among those, as you know, who believe that every affliction is a judgment upon the particular person to whom it occurs. We perceive that in this world, the best of men often endure the most of suffering and that the worst of men frequently escape. And therefore, we do not believe in judgments to particular persons except in extraordinary cases. But we do nevertheless very firmly believe that there are national judgments and that national sins provoke national chastisements. Spurgeon is pointing out that many godly and righteous people get sick, like Job. When they get sick, it's not necessarily a judgment from God. On the other hand, we know many ungodly people who seem to never get sick. 
We can't say that one person got sick because he was a great sinner and the other person didn't get sick because he wasn't a great sinner. But Spurgeon says that there are national judgments and national sins and they provoke national chastisements. Unfortunately, children and sometimes very godly and holy people die during these times of national chastisement. And that is a judgment upon the nation as well. Because when a righteous person dies, that nation is deprived of the good works, the holy example, and the prayers of that godly person who died. So even though the United States is not in covenant with God as a nation, God is still the righteous judge of nations. When God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham, he didn't give it to him and his descendants immediately. There were other nations living in the land of Canaan. Why didn't he drive out those nations immediately and give the people of Israel the land? Well, when God promised the land to Abraham in Genesis 15, verses 15 through 16, he said, And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The Amorites were a pagan nation in Canaan, and God was going to wait to a time when it would be fully just for him to drive them out of their land for their wickedness and give it to Israel. I don't know if the coronavirus is God's first step in driving us out of this land, but it is something we should think about. But the point is that even though the Amorites were not the covenant people of God, God was aware of their wickedness, and he would continue to wait until their wickedness was so horrible that he would be just in driving them completely out of the land. National sins deserve national chastisements, no matter what that nation is. So in Deuteronomy 28, God tells his people how he would bless them if they keep his commandments. But in verse 15, he says, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. But the Lord warns them about the things that will happen if they disobey him. In verses 21 and 22 we read, The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee, until he have consumed thee from off the land, whither thou goest to possess it. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption, and with a fever, and with an inflammation, and with an extreme burning, and with a sword, and with blasting, and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. So since God has said that if people disobeyed him, he would send that plague and pestilence and judgment, we could ask, for what sins could God bring this kind of judgment? Well, in Leviticus 26, the sins which warrant this kind of judgment are put in very general terms. Verse 15 says, And if ye shall despise my statutes, and if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant. As I have watched the news during this pandemic, I often hear people say, Why would God allow such a terrible thing to happen? As though we were the most innocent people in the world who certainly do not deserve such a thing to happen. Look at our nation. 
Look at how this nation lives in disobedience to all of God's commandments. We do not love and worship him. We are a nation of blasphemers. We're not a nation that recognizes the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are a nation of murderers, adulterers, thieves, and liars. To put it in the words of St. Paul, we are a nation filled with greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. A nation filled with backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful people. The list could go on and on. And we have the gall to ask the question, why would God allow such a thing? We should not be asking, why would God allow such a thing? We should be asking, why has God been so merciful to us as long as he has? The sins of this nation mount to the heavens, begging the judgment of a holy and righteous God. We forget how disgusting and horrible sin is in the sight of God, even those sins that we consider to be so small and insignificant. Today, I wanted to get to the story about God sending the pestilence upon Israel in the time of David, but obviously I don't have time, and I will treat it in detail next week. But let me just say that one of the reasons God sent this plague was because of pride. Why has God sent this plague to our nation? Could it be that God has sent this plague to humble us as a nation? In our text for today, St. Peter admonishes his people, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The Christians to whom Peter was writing were going through a time of terrible testing. And Peter refers to that time of testing as being under the mighty hand of God. What do we do when we are under the mighty hand of God? St. Peter says, humble yourselves. Right now, we are under the mighty hand of God. We should all feel his hand heavy upon us. During a time like this, we should realize more than ever that life and death, sickness and health are all in God's hands. Whenever I read in our prayer book the language our forefathers used to pray during time of sickness, what I am impressed by most is their humility. Modern Americans, even American Christians, know little or nothing of humility. We're not humble. We're defiant. We say, no, I will not believe that God is sending a message in this pandemic. No, I will not humble myself before a God who would allow such a thing to happen. But in our prayer book, just listen to the humility. In 1552, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. 1604, O Lord God, who hast wounded us for our sins and consumed us for our transgressions by thy late heavy and dreadful visitation. 1604, again, we humbly acknowledge before thee, O most merciful Father, that all the punishments which are threatened in thy law might justly have fallen upon us by reason of our manifold transgressions and hardness of heart. Do you know anybody even Christians who are using that language today, that if God has sent this to us as judgment, that we deserve it and far more. 
1928 prayer book, Deliver us, we beseech thee, from our peril. Do we hear anybody praying that God will have pity on us? If God has sent this disease our way to humble us, I pray that we might be humbled. I'll quote Spurgeon's cholera sermon one last time. Inasmuch as God had a purpose in sending tribulation, we may expect that he will not remove it until that design is answered. Whatever God has to say to London, if it be heard at once, he need not speak again. But if it be not heard the first time, there shall come a second voice and yet another. God takes not away the trouble which he sends unless he has answered his design by it. Those are terrifying words to me because when I look at this nation and our response to this virus, if God sent it to humble us, it seems as though we have refused to be humbled. And if this was his first word of warning, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and we have refused, then there will come another warning and another. I pray that we will listen to this warning. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let us confess the sin of pride in our absolute dependence on the Lord of heaven and earth. Let us pray that God will pour out his Holy Spirit so that our people may have grace to do so and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.